And now you can open your Bibles to James chapter 2, once again, James chapter 2. We approach verses 14 through 26, which form a well-known and crucial passage in the New Testament on faith and works. We talk a lot about being saved by faith. It's an absolute hallmark of biblical Christianity. But here in the epistle of James, the presence of good works seems to sit right next to faith in importance. And what do we make of this? Well, let's preview some of these verses. How would you explain these verses? James 2, if you're there, follow along at verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Verse 17, even so, if a faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Verse 24, he says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, clearly, James has a high view of works. Works are necessary to the Christian life, he argues. They don't replace faith, but they seem to complement faith in some way, such that if you have faith without works, it, it's dead and worthless. He even goes so far as to say that we are justified not by faith alone, but by works. And that raises many questions, especially since the Apostle Paul seems to say the exact opposite. These questions must be answered that we might understand James 2, that we might know the nature of true salvation, and that we might really incorporate the importance of works into our lives. If it really is this big of a deal, we should probably figure that out. Now, we've not yet studied this passage in detail. That will be coming up in the following weeks as we will go through these verses, you know, verse by verse and explore them all. But before we get there, we're devoting a few weeks to building up a basic theology of faith and works in the Bible. If you don't know what the Bible teaches about faith and works in general, well, you're going to have a hard time understanding and making sense of what James says here about faith and works. That's why I find many Christians are confused and challenged by this passage because they don't have a, a basic foundation of what the word says about salvation, faith, works, justification. So, that's what we're trying to establish first. We're doing some good old-fashioned you know, Bible teaching to equip you with a better understanding of the Word. And along these lines, today, I want to help you understand this concept of works. Works. It's clearly essential to James 2, right? But I want to ask it this way. What works is James talking about? James doesn't define for us in this passage what works he's talking about. He doesn't really tell us what counts as works and what doesn't. He just makes clear that these works, they're a big deal. They need to accompany your faith. And he just assumes we know what he's talking about. So what are they? Do you know? The answer is not always so simple. I think most, hopefully all Christians would agree even after salvation, does God still care about our behavior? Yes. Does he care how we live? Yes. We're saved by faith. True. But God still very much cares how we live and what we do. And coming to Christ as Lord, he directs your life now. So, okay then, how should we live? What should we do? Has God told us? Has he revealed to us what good works we should walk in after coming to him by faith? And has he shown us what evil deeds to avoid? Has he revealed? Well, yes, we would say yes to that as well. He has told us. He has shown us his will. Where has God told us? Well, the answer is in his law. We learned that last week when we did a study on the law of God overall. What is the law of God? It's not just a set of rules and regulations. We learned last week, God's law is really a revelation of his character and his will. In God's law, he is revealing, he's showing who he is and how we are to reflect his character by heeding his will. 
And so even after salvation, God still has a will for our lives, and his law directs us how we are to live to reflect him to the world. Now, the next question is a big one, though. Which law? Which law? What what law are we talking about? God has given many laws to his people in his word. So which ones apply to us today? Can Can these really change? What commands are we accountable to obey? It's a bigger question than you might think. How about keeping the Sabbath? Does God expect us to keep the Sabbath? Is that a good work, according to James 2, or not? And if not, why not? Because it seems like it used to be for God's people. What about observing all the dietary restrictions in the Old Testament? Does God still expect us to obey those laws that he used to? That those used to be, you know, good works, so to speak, in God's people. So are they still? Can, can God's laws really change like that? I mean, surely you would agree we're all still bound to honor our father and mother, right? So that law still applies. So some do, some don't. Who decides? Another example. There's only one verse in the Bible that even mentions or, or slightly references tattoos. And some people, some Christians will point to Leviticus 19.28 as proof that God thinks it's sinful for his people to get tattoos. And Leviticus 19.28 says, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the, for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. It seems pretty straightforward. That verse teaches that God forbids tattoos among his people. But people who quote that verse, they never quote the verse right before it. And they never seem to be held accountable to the law right before it, which says this, verse 27, you shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. Don't trim your beard. So are we accountable to that law as well? Are some laws still valid and some not? And who determines? Who gets to pick and choose? Is a massive issue of which Christians are rarely taught. And hopefully you can see how this is all foundational to a passage like James 2. God cares about our behavior. And James is going to teach us he really cares how we live, how we work out our faith. And we're going to get to that. But first, what are we even talking about here? What works are we talking about? What law is supposed to guide and direct our behavior? Central to this discussion is the law of Moses. The law of Moses dominates the Old Testament, but confusion comes with the New Testament because it seems like parts of this law no longer apply. The sacrificial system is gone. The dietary restrictions are gone. Sabbath worship is gone. But murder, adultery, theft, they're still wrong. So, seems like some still applies, I guess, right? Which of God's laws still direct our behavior showing us his will for our lives. Don't you need to know that? You should probably have that one figured out and realize the stakes because if you get God's law wrong, you could be obeying commands. You don't even need to. Even worse, you could be neglecting commands that you are under. So that's kind of a big deal. The answer to these questions comes in rightly understanding what the Bible teaches about the ongoing nature of the law of Moses. And for us today, living in the church, we need to know what God's word says about our relationship to his law, specifically that Old Testament law of Moses. And so that's what we're aiming to discover this morning. There's no shortage of opinions and answers out there. How does the church relate to the law of Moses? Are we still under the law of Moses? You'll find many answers. Take, for example, the Seventh-day Adventists. They believe that the Ten Commandments represent the eternal moral law of God. And so they're always binding on all people, on God's people always. And that, of course, includes the command to observe the Sabbath. And so they observe the seventh day, the Sabbath, as their day of rest and their day of worship. That's why they gather on Saturdays. And to them, this is a moral issue. Now, the rest of the Old Testament laws, they believe, were ceremonial in nature and were fulfilled by Christ. But in an interesting and somewhat inconsistent note, they appeal to the ceremonial law of Leviticus 11 to advocate abstaining from non-kosher foods. 
And so most Seventh-day Adventists adhere to kosher laws because of Leviticus 11. So are they right? Is that a right view of the law? The whole movement came because of their view of the law. Are they right? As a side note, whether you agree or disagree, you can thank Seventh-day Adventists for the cereal aisle in the market. (laughs) Not joking, John Harvey Kellogg was an early Seventh-day Adventist, and he was looking for a healthy, kosher, plant-based cereal food for America. So he's the one who's credited with inventing modern breakfast cereal, like cornflakes. That's him. He's also credited with the invention of peanut butter. And I'll tell you right now, we disagree with their view of the Old Testament law. But I do like peanut butter, so at least something good came out of their misinterpretation of the Bible. Now, there's another movement known as Christian Reconstructionism. You've all heard of that, right? Or theonomy, it's called. Theonomists believe the whole world should be brought under God's law. They believe the world should be reconstructed under the lordship of Christ in every area. Military, politics, art, education, family, everything. And this includes a restoration of the Old Testament moral and civil laws. They believe the ceremonial laws were fulfilled by Christ, but the civil laws of the Old Testament still guide us and should be implemented in government today. They'd like to see a return of the Mosaic law in government. That includes, for example, the death penalty for idolatry, adultery, murder, homosexuality, and rape. These were all the penalties for those sins under the Mosaic law. So so are they right? Should we be bound and directed by the the civil law of the Old Testament? In general, most Christians are simply confused when it comes to an understanding of the law of Moses. Now, most I talk to default to a pick-and-choose mentality. You know, they talk about tithing, they quote the Ten Commandments, but all the ceremonial stuff, they kind of skip over that. Is that the right approach? Well, I think that's enough questions for now. How about we start to find some answers, just provide some clarity and an understanding on the law that we might know what God expects of us and that we might know how we are to reflect his character in the way we live. What is our relationship specifically to the law of Moses? Now, that's our our quest this morning. And look, by the way, I know this is not a normal sermon that we typically do. It's more like a, a seminary class today, I guess you could say, but this is so necessary for Christians to have a basic equipping of how to understand you know, more than half the Bible. And so we, we need to do this. We'll do this Q&A style. So I'm going to help you understand our relationship to the Mosaic Law by answering for you four questions, four key questions. Question number one, start off simple. What is the Law of Moses? What is the Law of Moses? Just in case you weren't here last week, just to clarify what we're talking about. The law of Moses refers to the set of commands that God gave to Israel through Moses, mostly at Mount Sinai. This law is primarily found in the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah. And they, together, they contain 613 commands for Israel and how they were to live in the land. Now, this law is fundamentally tied to something called the Mosaic Covenant. Covenant God made with Moses and, and, and Israel. It's not the same as the Abrahamic covenant. Earlier, God made a covenant with Abraham, the father of the faith. And he promised to bless him and his descendants after him forever. And that was an unconditional promise. The Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. But the Mosaic covenant was different. This was a conditional covenant made with Israel only. Right before giving the Ten Commandments, God said this to Israel, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. He said, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel will always be a special nation among the nations in God's plan. But the question is, would they experience God's blessing in the land and be used by God as witnesses in the land? That was tied to their obedience to the covenant 
and the covenant law, the law of Moses. Keep in mind, Israel was to be a theocracy. That's where church and state are like the same thing. And so the law of Moses was like their, their national constitution, their legal book, their cultural standard, and their religious practices all wrapped up into one. It was everything for them as a nation. So that's a little bit about what it is. Question number two, can the law of Moses be divided? Can the law of Moses be divided? What do I mean by this? Well, have you heard of the threefold division of the law? The threefold division of the law. Many divide up the Mosaic law into three parts. The civil, the ceremonial, and the moral law. These are like three subgroups in the law of Moses. The civil law. Well, that pertains to everything about life as a nation. Matters of state, disputes between individuals, crimes and punishment, stuff like that. For example, Exodus 21:33 says, if you dig a pit and a neighbor's ox falls into the pit, well, you have to pay restitution, civil law, stuff like that. Then you have the ceremonial laws, which governed Israel's culture and their religious practices. So, you know, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, offerings, tithes, feasts, festivals, all that would be classified in the ceremonial law. Then you have the food restrictions, like not eating pork or shellfish, also under the ceremonial law. And then lastly, there's the moral law. Most equate the moral law with like just the Ten Commandments. God's ethical commands for Israel. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't commit idolatry, and so on. Okay, so simple enough to understand. The question we're asking here, because... That's very common. You'll hear a lot of Christians dividing it up like that. So the question we're asking is, is that legitimate? And while we don't doubt it's a helpful way to classify some of the laws, the answer ultimately is no. No, the law cannot legitimately be divided into three like that. And some Christians today, they will say that, look, Christ came and he fulfilled all the ceremonial laws and he fulfilled all the civil laws. And that's why we can eat pork today and we don't sacrifice animals anymore. But we're still under all the moral laws. So that's still in effect. So the law of Moses is divided up into three parts. And two-thirds are safely discarded, but we're still under all the moral law. Now this, however, is just simply a wrong view of the law. Why? Well, it's just never taught in the Bible. It's unbiblical. The simple truth is the Bible never supports or even references this threefold division of the law. Not once. Instead, the law of Moses is always, every time, viewed as a unified whole. It's just one thing. Jesus quoted many times from the so-called civil and ceremonial laws. And every time, do you know what he called it? Just the law. It is just the law. He didn't say, well, the civil law says this or the ceremonial law says this. No, all was just the law of Moses. He viewed the law of Moses as a unified whole, which had to be fulfilled by him in its entirety. Luke 24, 44. Now, it's true. If you might say, if you're, if you're going to divide it up, yeah, Jesus fulfilled the civil parts and he fulfilled the ceremonial parts. But did he not also fulfill the moral aspects of the law? He fulfilled the whole thing. So as to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. You know, listen to Matthew 5.17 and 18. Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus always saw the law as a unit, which he came to fulfill, not in part, but in whole. The same goes for Paul and the apostles. They always viewed the law as a unified whole. Like Paul said in Galatians 3 or 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. The whole thing. The same goes for Galatians 3.10, where he argued that, look, you either keep the whole law, or you're guilty of the whole law and under the curse. 
It's an all or nothing thing. And didn't we just learn back in James 2.10 what James said? Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. So every time the apostles Christ, they always view the law as a unified whole. And look, there are some commands that, that make, they can be classified as, you know, ceremonial in nature or civil or prophetic in nature or moral. But the point is they always go together. There's no splitting up the law and saying, well, two thirds don't apply anymore. It's just an all or nothing proposition. Either the whole thing is still in place or it's not. The whole thing has been fulfilled. It's a take it or leave it. Again, some try and solve the problem of our relationship to the law of Moses by saying, you know, we throw out two thirds. We're just going to keep the moral stuff. It seems like a nice and tidy solution to how we relate to the law. But at the end of the day, every single one of God's 613 commands were moral. It's all moral to God. These were all moral laws to God. Breaking any of them made you guilty. And his law was not to be divided. Either you're under the whole thing, and therefore you must keep the whole thing, or you're not. And so now, obviously, we have to ask, well, which is it? Question number three, are we under the law of Moses? Are we under the unified law of Moses? And the answer to that is no. No, we're not. Well, part of it, like the civil, the ceremonial, like, no, the whole thing. It's all one thing, and we're not under any part of the law of Moses. Now, you got to hear me out. When I tell people this, sometimes they get confused. Some even get offended. Because, like, didn't Paul say the law is good and holy? Isn't it, like, sacrilegious to throw the whole thing out? But, look, no one's throwing it out. It's just that the Bible clearly teaches that after Christ... Those in the church are not under the law of Moses, the the whole thing. So hear me out, but don't take my word for it. Let's just study the Bible itself and see for yourself how clear it teaches that we're not under any part of the law of Moses. First, you have the plain evidence that Christians in this new thing called the church, that they didn't keep the law of Moses anymore. At first, these were all Jews who followed Jesus, and they quickly understood that the law of Moses is not binding on the church. And so circumcision was dropped as a requirement for believers. Passover observance was traded for the Lord's Supper. The sacrificial system was gone. The Levitical priesthood was gone. Temple worship was replaced with church assembly. Then you have Jesus teaching in Mark 7.19 that all foods are clean. And Christ himself removed the clean, unclean distinction from the law. This is only confirmed in Acts 10.15 where Peter learned in a vision that what God has considered holy, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And so all of the dietary restrictions are gone. The same goes for the Sabbath. This is a big one. Because this is one of, the, one of the Ten Commandments, Commandment number four. Supposedly the eternal moral law of God, right? But Hebrews 4 teaches that the Mosaic Sabbath rest pointed to a greater Sabbath rest. Namely, salvation in Christ leading to heaven. So the command to observe a weekly Sabbath finds fulfillment in the eternal Sabbath rest granted by Christ. And so it's only natural then that the early church pretty quick stopped observing the Sabbath day. They saw it a day of worship, but it became Sunday, the first day, the day of Christ's resurrection. But Christians understood they were no longer bound by the Sabbath command. Paul confirms this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are mere shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The list goes on, but the first point is that the first Christians soon recognized that they were no longer under the law of Moses. It's gone. It was fulfilled. All of it, the whole thing, was fulfilled in Christ, and it's not binding on any 
in the church. But that's not all. We have more to go by than merely the example of the early church. There's a plethora of direct teaching in the New Testament that says even more. So let me give you the top three passages that prove this point. Top three passages. There's more, but we only have so much time. So the first, Galatians 3. You can turn there. If you want to follow along, turn to Galatians 3. Of course, you can just listen along, but we'll be looking at many passages. Galatians chapter 3. You know, in the whole letter of Galatians, Paul is rebuking Christians who have a wrong view of the law. They're wrong in two ways. One, they believe the law of Moses directs how we are to live, but it doesn't do that anymore. And two, they they were starting to believe that the law of Moses directs how we are to be saved, but it never did that. And so throughout, Paul argues the law was never a means of salvation. No one was saved by the law. Galatians 3.10. No one was justified by the law. Paul shows that God's promise of salvation was always tied to the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. Now, if that's true, then what's the point of the law? If it wasn't to save people, why did God give the law of Moses? Look at verse 19 if you're there in Galatians 3. He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Listen, God promised to save his people by faith. And that promise of salvation by faith would come through a seed of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham. And Israel's salvation would likewise come through that promised seed, that descendant of Abraham. And the law was given not to create some plan B of salvation, but rather to show them their desperate need for that seed, for that savior who would come. The law, verse 21, the law never had the ability to impart life. You're spiritually dead. The law can't make you alive. Never had that power. Instead, verse 22, but the scripture He's talking about the law has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's always been about the promise of life in the savior. And that comes by the law. No, it comes by faith, but the law reveals sin, convicts us of sin, makes us desperate for the promise of salvation by faith in this seed The law is pictured uh, trapping us like a cage, trapping us on every side. We can't get out like an animal trapped in a cage. And our only hope is the door of Christ. And so verse 23 says, but before faith came, meaning Christ, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. And Paul is speaking collectively here of Israel when he says we But now that the law, or rather now the law is pictured like a jailer. It's keeping Israel trapped in sin. Because look, they could not keep this law. They couldn't even come close. So all it did was condemn them and curse them. But it also pointed them the way. Verse 24, it says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law was not an evil jailer. It's more like a a guardian or a tutor. God placed the law of Moses over Israel, his people, to give them a distinct national identity and to be their escort, to be their guardian until the day when the seed would come. The, The law was meant to prepare them for the coming of this promise that they might receive him when he came. Well, guess what? The Messiah has come. That promised seed of Abraham has come. But what does that mean for the guardianship of the law? Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The promise of salvation through faith in Christ has come. It's here. The promised seed has come. Now we're under Christ. So what does that mean about our relationship to that tutor? We're no longer under the tutor, i.e. the law of Moses. We're no longer under the law of Moses. Instead, we're united to Christ and we're heirs of the promise, not through Moses, but through Abraham. That's chapter four. We won't read it, but the whole of chapter four, Paul goes on to display the superiority of the promise of faith through Abraham over law through Moses. But look at chapter five, verse one. He says this, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He's talking about bondage to the law of Moses there. Slavery to the old ways. But Christ has set us free from what? From that. From the curse of the law and from the burden of the law. And instead now, Christ calls us not to follow the law of Moses, but the law of love which is the law of Christ. Look at verse six of Galatians five. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Think about that statement for like an Orthodox Jew that Paul was. Circumcision doesn't mean anything anymore. What matters? But faith working through love. Also verse 14. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law is fulfilled. We're not under that law. We now have the law of, you might say, love that we are under. God still cares how we live. We are still called to holiness, but the law of Moses no longer shows us what that looks like for God's people. We walk no longer according to the law, but according to what? The spirit, the spirit is now our guide for how God wants us to live. And so a big verse, verse 18 of Galatians five, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. If you're in Christ, you're a Christian, you have the spirit, you're not under the law. God has given us a new law written on our hearts and the Holy Spirit within us guides us into his will. The law of Moses has been replaced. What part of it? All of it. The whole thing. It found its fulfillment in Christ. The promised seed has come. We are no longer under the tutor. If you have the spirit and you're filled with the spirit, you're no longer under that law. Pretty clear. I think it's pretty clear. But in case you're not there yet, Passage number two. We're getting there. We're, we're almost done. But look at Romans 7. We will another key passage here. I told you I'd give you the top three passages. Romans 7. You can turn there or you can continue to listen. Romans 7. And here Paul is making many similar points that he made in Galatians. He's saying, look, the law of Moses does not show us the way of salvation. It never did. And the law of Moses no longer directs how we are to live. The spirit now does that. But in Romans 7, he makes a point. It's, it's all a jurisdiction issue. It's all about jurisdiction. Romans 7, verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, growing up, growing up in L.A., watching car chases in L.A., they always go south. They're always running south. They're trying to get to the Mexico border because they think, and they know, I guess, if they can cross over the border into Mexico, they're free. They're no longer under the jurisdiction of U.S. law. And so, essentially, they're free. Well, Israel, in the Old Testament, they were under the jurisdiction of the law of Moses. So, it was entirely binding on them. But the, what Paul is saying is that jurisdiction is over. How so? Well, he illustrates, verses 2 and 3 is an illustration. He says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning uh, her husband. So then, 
if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. What he's saying is that the marriage covenant is broken by death. And that gives the other spouse freedom to remarry, freedom from guilt of sin. And so when one party dies, covenant law ends. The marriage covenant law ends when one party dies. You get that? When one party dies, covenant law ends. What's he saying here? What's the point? Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. What he's saying is by virtue of our union with Christ, we have died. We have died to the law, which means we're free. We're no longer bound in covenant to the law. We've been freed from the jurisdiction of the old covenant. And now we're legally bound to another, to Christ, our head, our savior, that we might bear fruit for life. Look at verse five. He says, for while we were still in the flesh, that means under the law, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law. That's pretty clear. We've been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we might serve in newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Did you catch that in verse 6? We've been released from the law. And now we serve in newness of the spirit, not oldness of the letter. The new has come, the new has come Christ, and the old fades away, the law. This doesn't mean the law of Moses was a bad thing. He says in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? It may never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Again, he points out one of the main purposes of this law was, which was to reveal sin, to convict of sin. So he says in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But as he explains in the rest of the chapter, we're the problem. The law of God was good, but we are the problem because of our fallen natures, because of indwelling sin. The law is only a curse for us. It's only a source of death for us because of indwelling sin. This law could never help us because of us. It's never our hope. But God can help us. He can actually make us new. And that's what he does. Look at Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. You remember this from last week? Romans 8, verse 1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We're under a new law now. Here, he calls it the law of spirit and life. And in that, we've been set free from the law of sin and death. That's talking about the law of Moses. Which part of it? All of it. Again, the whole thing, it all comes together. In Christ, he says in verse 4, the requirements of the law were fulfilled. And so now we do not walk according to the flesh, that is to say the law, but according to what? There it is again. Now we walk according to the spirit. The law of Moses does not direct our lives like it did for Israel before Christ. Now God's spirit directs our lives directly within us. Does God still care how we live? Yes, but we have a much better law and a much better guide, the spirit within. Look, the law of Moses served its purpose, but Christ has come and the spirit has come. So things are different. Things are better, but you need to understand the difference. 
But let's, let's finish up with one last passage, Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7. From Romans 7 to Hebrews 7, these top three passages showing you we're not under the law any longer. Hebrews 7. Like Paul said in Galatians, the author of Hebrews, he's arguing for the superiority of the promise through Abraham over the law through Moses. The promise is better. And that goes for the priesthood too. You know, if the Levitical priesthood from the Old Testament, if that was so perfect, we wouldn't have need for another priesthood. But Christ has come. And you know, he's our new high priest, right? And he's not a Levitical priest though. He says he came in the order of Melchizedek. And so he's a new priest. He's a, a better priest. Now you know that, right? He's our new high priest. But do you know verse 12? Do you remember verse 12 of Hebrews 7? It says, for when the priesthood is changed, and so it's happened, we have Christ, we have a new priesthood. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there also takes place a change of law also. New priest, new law. New priest, new covenant, new law. And so he says down in verse 18. So on the one hand, There is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness to save us. That is, he says, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And so you see the former commandment, the law was set aside, all of it. The law of Moses was weak because of our flesh. So it could not bring us near to God. You can try to keep the commands all you want. They're not bringing you any closer to God because all you do is just violate. Maybe not all of them, but enough. And they just, they're keeping you away from God. But Christ has come. He's shown us the way to God and the way of God. And so the old law has been set aside. Christ is a better priest over God's people. And he has a better promise and he's brought a better covenant. Not the old covenant, but the new covenant. That's what chapter 8 is all about. You can look at Hebrews 8. Christ is our mediator in heaven now. He says the true tabernacle. The law was, was but a shadow and a preview of what was to come. But Christ is the real deal. Christ is the real thing. He came to fulfill it. He says in verse 7, you know, that, that old covenant the law of Moses, that thing were so perfect, there would never be an occasion for a new covenant. God would never have promised a new covenant if the old was so great. But he did promise a new and better covenant. And then the author goes on to quote from that new covenant passage, Jeremiah 31. You know, the passage where God said that in those days, he would write his laws, where? In their minds, and inscribe them on their hearts. He's going to internalize his law in his people. And well, this new covenant has come with Christ. But again, I know this is redundant. We're just piling it on. But what does that spell for the old covenant? Verse 13 of Hebrews 8. He said, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The law of Moses was but a shadow of the good things to come. It was not the final expression of God's character or God's will. Jesus is the final expression of God's character and God's will. So the law served its purpose, but now it's obsolete. But you know what? That's not a bad thing because now we have Christ Would you rather go to bed each night, for those of you who are married, next to a picture of your spouse or next to your actual spouse? Some of you don't answer that question, but But the point is that the person is better than the picture. The person is greater than the picture. And that's the superiority of Christ and his covenant, which we are under. There are plenty more verses, but I think we've done enough. It's clear enough. We are no longer under the old covenant and its law, the law of Moses, not any part of it. The whole thing has been set aside and made obsolete 
by Christ. The commands, they were good and they were holy. But it's now Jesus who shows us the way to God and the Spirit who shows us the way of God, how we are to live now. We are led by the Spirit and no longer under the law of Moses. Well, we're going to finish up real quick with one last question here. We've got to clarify one last thing because this does not mean the law of Moses is worthless to us. So real quick, let's finish up question four. What is our relationship to the law of Moses? What is our relationship to the law of Moses? We're not under it. We're no longer under any part of the law of Moses. But that does not mean we should cut the Old Testament out of our Bible. Just because we're not under its jurisdiction does not mean it's useless to us. You know, it's like you grew up in a cave in Mongolia, for example, and then you moved to America and your life is vastly different. And, you know, we'd say vastly better. Now, later you might go visit your old cave home and you no longer live there. But by visiting, it's going to give you a greater appreciation for the life you now have. Well, look, we don't live under the law of Moses anymore. But we visit all the time by reading the Old Testament. And it gives us a greater appreciation for all we have in Christ and our new home in the church. In fact, remember, the law was intended to point to Christ, was it not? And now that we can read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, we can actually appreciate the law even more with its original intent. Not every passage, you know, you don't find Christ in every single verse of the Old Testament, but the whole thing reveals him profoundly. And we can see the will and the character of God revealed more completely in the old, now that we have the new. This is great profit from the old. Also, the Old Testament is still profitable for our daily lives. How? Well, you remember this verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You know, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's that tying back to James 2, good work. You know, when Paul said that, he was primarily talking about the Old Testament. And while he doesn't say we're under the law, he does say, though, the whole thing is still profitable for us. It's still profitable for what? For teaching, for training, for good works. The difference, though, is we relate to the Old Testament now in principle. In principle. We no longer go there to find rules for our life, but we find tons of principles for our life. And those principles still reflect the character of God. So, for example, we're no longer bound by the command to abstain from pork. You have freedom in Christ. Go have a hot dog today. But we're still bound to be holy and to be set apart from the nations, to be set apart from the wicked. They might look differently today, but nonetheless, we can see that principle in the laws and we're still bound by those principles and we can still derive great benefit from the law. So just get this. It still guides us, not in rule, but in principle. It still guides us, not in rule, but in principle. Now, hearing all this, you know, might still have questions. We keep saying we're not under the law. Does that mean, though, now we can do whatever we want. Murder's still wrong though, right? So it, it seems like some of the laws still kind of ap- apply. So, so what's the deal with that? What happened to all those moral laws of God? Can those even change? Are we still under any form of real law? We actually still have more questions and more answers will come next week. We'll turn our attention exclusively from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. The law of Christ. So I'd say... You should be here for that. But I get this. It's all heavy teaching. This is not our normal Sunday, you know, casual Sunday sermon. Although I guess they never are. But these, <laughs> but I just really believe these truths are so necessary for just your everyday Christian. For understanding the value of God's word and how we read God's word, how we apply it to our lives, how we do benefit from it. We need to know. And if you learned anything today, hey, learn to read your Old Testament. You're not going to find rules and restrictions for your life, 
But you are going to find principles for your life, and you are going to see in a special way Christ, the Savior. Right before Paul said that in 2 Timothy 3, he told Timothy this, 2 Timothy 3, 15. He said, hey, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, the prophet of the Old Testament, it still shows us the wisdom of God and points us to Christ. It still can show us salvation by faith in Christ. It may be in shadow form, but now that Christ has come, we can see him so clearly there. So, so go there. Go visit the old home of God's people. Read your Old Testament. Derive the prophet and gain a better appreciation for God's eternal plan. His plan has always been, as Paul said, salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Well, our Father in heaven, we are just thankful for this time. It's good. We need to, to study your word. Like Paul said, your word is still profitable for teaching. Sometimes we just need to study and be taught your word and how we are to understand it. The Bible is a big book and many are confused by it. Many get it wrong. We just, we want to get it right, Lord. We're, we're Bereans. We want to know what you have said and what you hold us accountable to, that we might please you. We know, Lord, we're not saved by works, but the promise has come. The seed has come and he sets us free from sin, from death, from slavery. He gives us life and the spirit that we might now walk in your ways. And we just want to appreciate that, Lord, and and know now how to please you. We want lives that are abounding in, in fruit and good works, but we need to know how to do that and what guides us. And now we know it's the spirit. We thank you for the coming of the spirit. We thank you even still for the law, the old law by which we, we see Christ revealed and your will for us in principle form. I pray we take this, we apply it, and we just grow in our walks and grow in our love and worship for the God who's done so much for his people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.